I made a great entrance up here. Did everybody hear that? finesse the way I do things. All right. Well, it's good having everybody here. I, I got to meet a few different people that either hadn't seen you for a while or even on another side of it that you're new here. And so let me just say this. Welcome to Cornerstone. We're really glad that you're with us. We've been in the middle of studying through a letter that a guy named Paul, an apostle, wrote to a church in Thessalonica, which is this church that's kind of in the upper part of, of, of Greece. And it's a letter that we believe God inspired and so that's why we look at it. We believe God's word is powerful. It's living. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It transforms lives. So if you got your Bibles this morning, open them up. If you got a Bible app, open them up. If you don't have a Bible, good news is I'm going to be putting things up on the screen, and you can look at them that way. But we are going to open God's word today. But where we're at in this point in the letter, and Christian kind of talked about this, is where Paul kind of takes and he, he turns from recounting their shared past that they had together, and in so many ways, all that God had done through their shared relationship, all that God was kind of manifesting in their lives at that particular point. And now what he's going to start to do is he's going to start to exhort them. He's going to start to now say, okay, in light of everything that I've said, here's how we're called to live. Now, the way that he's going to do that, as you see up there, is he's going he's, he's to talk about this idea of, of urging them. He says in there, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. In other words, hey, I've championed some things to this point, but now we got to land the plane. And we're going to land the plane in some very key areas. In one way, we, he brings in this in chapter one. He brings this idea of hope into it. He brings this idea of boldness into it. But then even you see, if you look down in your Bibles at 311 through 13, he's also going to use a prayer in which he kind of gave us an outline. When you look down in verse 12, he intended to address this idea of increasing and abounding in love, which you'll see down there and we'll talk about today. Last week, we talked about this idea of their hearts being blameless. You can see that down in verse 13 of holiness. That's what Christian covered last weekend. And then finally, what we're going to be looking at in the coming weeks is all about this idea of, of God's people. And I think that's important, returning with Jesus at some point to establish God's kingdom forever. In other words, that's going to be his outline, but he's making sure that we understand we need to land the plane into real life. So last week, what Christian did in 4, 1 through 8 is he walked us through holiness, specifically in regards to just sexual brokenness, which I'll tell you what. I think in our culture that's in such a sex-crazed culture, man, we, we need to hear that, that kind of a communication more often. But his main point wasn't just about sexual brokenness. His main point, when you look down at this text, <clears throat> is about holiness. And I love how he, the way that Christian formed that is we have been set apart, and he, Christian used this word, repurposed for God's glory. No longer we purposed this direction in our sexuality, but instead now out of our sexual brokenness, God repurposes us in such a way to be now that our sexuality will come to bear in a way that we bring honor to King Jesus by how we display him. By that kind of what we talked about that Christian dropped out of this kind of this text for us is that we steward our sexuality as men, we steward our sexuality as women, we steward our sexuality as married people, we steward our sexuality as single people, but the whole goal is that in everything that we do and everything that we say, that we would display God well. We want to we reflect him into the world. And I think that's why when you get down specifically <clears throat> into verse 12, he says it's not only how we walk properly towards God, but it's also how we walk properly towards people. 
See, holiness is not something that's meant to be kept behind like a, a glass and people kind of just look in on it. Holiness is meant to be such a, in such a way that we begin to walk in amongst people. We are in the world, but we're not of the world so that people might see who we are. I think sometimes we think of holiness as staying away from the world, but our holiness is intended that we not be of the world, but we have to be in the world if we're going to introduce people to our king, King Jesus. We have to be out there amongst them. Now, the natural question, I think, then, is like, okay, if that's true, how do we put holiness into action? I think this is the question that would have naturally come up in people's heads. How do we put this holiness into action? How do we put displaying God's glory? How do we put displaying who God is in the world? How do we put it into action reflecting who God is in the world so that people might see Jesus? And what he's gonna do in verse nine through 12 is he's gonna introduce us to this concept, and let me just put it this way, of family love. He's gonna talk about our family. Now, let me, let me give you an illustration to kind of frame it so that you can kind of see where we're going today. When I first started flying with children, I never listened to those announcements that they give before. I, I, I rarely listen to those announcements. In fact, I could care less what they say because you're just kind of on the plane, you're like, blah, blah, blah. But there was one that caught me. When you're flying with your children, what are you supposed to do first if the masks come down? Put the mask on yourself first and then put it on your kids. Now, what in essence I think Paul's gonna say for us as Christians is before you put the mask on the world, make sure you have the mask on yourself. Make sure that you actually can breathe or you're gonna be no help in any way whatsoever to the world that's out there. Now, when we look down in this, especially when we get into 3.12, one of the ways in which I think he's gonna draw out this love, can you put the verses back here for me, whoever is doing that? I have to keep turning around to make sure I'm on the, on the right one. But one of the things he's gonna do in verse 12 is talk about this idea that God's people, the love within them is supposed to increase, and then you see this word down in verse 12 so that it abounds, so that it spills out for our neighbors, and I would even say this to those that are our enemies, People need to see and experience God, his holiness, but the way in which they experience his holiness is how we as a group of people not only love one another, but begin to love the world we're living in. So that's where we're gonna go today. We're gonna try to explore that out. It's not just holiness for holiness sake, it's holiness so that our world might see God, okay? So that's what we have to keep in our minds. Now to get where we're going also in the book of Thessalonians, you're just gonna have to forgive me. We're gonna geek out a little bit in Greek. Now you're probably wondering, why, why are we doing Greek? Greek's all, it's all Greek to me. We're gonna geek out in Greek a little bit because that's the language that the, the New Testament was written in. And for me to kind of help add some color to this text, you're gonna have to geek out with me a little bit. It's not just because I wanna show you all the things I learned in seminary, but I wanna, I wanna be able to lay out for you some things that I think are so important for us to grasp and to understand if we're gonna be able to be the people God's intending us to be within the world. Now, a lot of what we're gonna have to do is look down at this particular word, you, within the text. Let me, let me go back to it. Does everybody see all those words, you, in there? If you were to highlight all the words you in there, you can start to see, wow, this you thing is very important. But the hard part about our language, again, our language is deficient, not the translation, is that we're not sure when it is first person you or second person you. Now, back in the old school days, right, within the King James, if you've ever had a King James Bible, you'll see words like ye and thee and thine and thou. All that stuff has to do, actually, if you don't know this, with the difference between 
prime, or be, between plural words and singular words. Now, what I want to do is I'm going to add a little bit. Why does this keep going? Where did I go? Now, here we go. What I want to do, though, because I think Southerners have the answer to this problem. Okay, so I'm going to answer. I'm going to show you something that's really cool, to, and then I'll bring out why this is so important. Now, let me, let me read this to you. And so if you're from the South right now, you should be sitting there going, dang straight. Y'all finally figured it out. Now, listen. <clears throat> Verse 9. Now, concerning brotherly love, it's not you singular, it's y'all. See, people from the South know what's up. Y'all have no need for anyone to write to y'all. For y'all, y'all selves, have my taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what y'all are doing to all the brothers and sisters of Macedonia. But we urge y'all, brothers and sisters, to do this more and more, and y'all need to inspire to live quietly, and y'all need to mind your own affairs, and y'all need to work with y'all's hands, <clears throat> as we instructed y'all, so y'all may be walk, able to walk properly before outsiders, and y'all might be dependent, he says, on no one. Now, here's why I wanted to draw that out, and I want you just to catch the thrust of it. This nuance is important because Paul wasn't seeking to make this call to love to you individually. He's drawing it out in such a way so that he would create this idea, and you can see that word in there, brotherly love. He wants us to understand you can't work this out alone. You have to work it out with other people. We have to do this together. Now, don't get me wrong. As one of the guys, I hated doing group projects when I was like in middle school and high school because I would do all the work and the losers out there would do the, you know, they would follow off of me. Okay, I'm lying. It was the opposite. I loved doing group work because I would find somebody who knew what they were doing and they would do the work and I would follow along with them. But what he's talking about here is God's church is not meant to be a solo event. It is a team effort. It is a corporate reality in how we work these things out. These four verses, what he's trying to help and draw out for them is that in order for us to make sense to the world, the holiness of God, we have to see this as a group project. Now, what was cool when you look down into verse 9 is that in some ways, and I love how he puts it here concerning brotherly love, he said, you have no need for anyone to write to you. When it came to loving, the way that he kind of frames it here as Paul intended them in a way that, that put God on display, that a way that put it on collectively, in many ways, they were already doing a good job. But what I want to do is pull out some nuggets from this, and here's where we're going to kind of geek out a little bit more on Greek to help you understand just how amazing it is when the God's spirit lands into his people. What does it look like now that we're displaying God to the world through love? Well, the first word that's in there, if you kind of look down, he's, he, he talks about this idea of not just general love, but in verse 9, he talks about brotherly love, or this, this Greek word, Philadelphia, right? Philly is called the city of brotherly love. What's key here is that the word for love was almost exclusively used for family. He said, I want you to work it out, not just a general love, I want you to work out a love, which Christian and I tried to hammer on in chapters two and three, this idea that we as a church, the way that we're to love actually, people to say, that's a family. In fact, in the early church, here's what's so crazy. This is how much they loved each other as family. 
Actually, those that were against them called them incestuous because they actually believed that they were brothers and sisters. They weren't, just so you know. But that was the accusation. Paul says, look, for the world to see the holiness of God, it has to be framed out of this idea of brotherly love. All these y'alls that I'm using is so that you would understand the world will know you're Christians, John 13, 35, by how y'all love each other. Holiness that doesn't lead to a love within the church is not holiness. It's intended to be showed off, and the way that it gets showed off is within how we love one another. So here's the thing that we gotta get. Holy love is by character, brotherly or family love. Okay, has everybody got it in their head? The first aspect of this is, is that God is seeking to build within a local church people that love each other like they believe they are family. That's why we're hitting this drum so hard, is that if we're gonna display Jesus well, we have to have that family type of love. However, this holy kind of family love concept that, that compelled Paul, just to understand this, he's gonna give more of an explanation. Look again down in verse nine. He says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no one to... Re- that anyone's right to you. We've already looked at that. We kind of pulled out the reality. Four, and this word kind of gives the explanation, you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Now that little word there, taught by God, is this, this Greek word, it's called theodidaktoi. Okay, I know, cool word. But what he does is he grabs one word, theos, which is God, didaktos, And he slammed them together, and the first time this word ever came into use was in this particular passage. Paul, whether he knew it or not, was like George W. Bush, colliding words together and creating things. Some of you don't get it. It's okay. But the whole point is, is he chose this word for a reason. But why did he choose this word to describe what was really this this brotherly love that was going on amongst them? Well, in Isaiah 54, Paul is going all the way back there, and he's grabbing out of verse 13 this idea when the the writer of, of Isaiah, when he's writing this, and he's talking about what will happen when the new covenant lands onto God's people, he says, all your children shall be, and here's the connection, they shall be taught by the Lord. So basically what Paul was saying is he was saying, listen, the reason that you all are loving like you are loving one another right now is that the new covenant has landed on you and you have been transformed. You are God taught. You are the fulfillment of the promise of what God had talked about long, long ago. You are it. You are the fulfillment of it. He is in you. But he didn't even stop there. I think he's even drawn more from because in the book of Isaiah, God declared or, uh, through the through, or, excuse me through the, the, the uh, prophet Jeremiah. God declared through Jeremiah in verse in chapter thirty four this same thing, only from a different angle. Look at verse thirty three. He says, "For this is the covenant, the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days," declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Verse thirty four. And no longer shall one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. 
the law of God, the, the character and heart of God would be actually written within their hearts. He would be in them. And what's so cool about this is in this nearness, he would essentially be their chief teacher. But as the infomercial goes, oh, and there's more. In Ezekiel 36, the means of being taught by God was explained even more. Look down in verse 25. Hopefully I've got it up there. But in, in 25, the way their hearts would receive God's teaching is that God would, look at this, sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols, I will cleanse you. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk my statutes, to be careful to obey my rules. In other words, God intended to be near us. He intends us now to be God-taught through indwelling us. Now, let me just say this. If you're a follower of Jesus in here, I don't know when the last time it was that you were just blown away that the God of the universe is dwelling through and in us, but that is crazy. If you're not a follower of Jesus here today, just understand this, that you are amongst a group of people that we are just as messed up as anyone else on this planet. There is nobody with which we are not as messed up as anybody. The only difference is, is that we have the Spirit of God dwelling in and through us, and my prayer is today that you will encounter that God through the lives of these people. We are not just gathering here to sing a few songs and hear a quick message. We are gathering here because that's what God's people do when they gather together, to be together as the means of God's spirit dwelling in and through us in the hopes that we will ignite that fire of love between us so that the world might know that King Jesus is who he says he was, the true Lord of all lords. Oh, Paul says, do you understand who you are? You're a part of a family that has a holy love. You're part of a family that God is teaching you. And what's so cool about this, we know that when something now is one of God's kids, and this is the key, is that we begin to take on the characteristics of our parent. When God's spirit landed into us, all of us that are God's people, whether we knew it or not, begin to take on his characteristics. And one of those characteristics of our father is that he just loves extravagantly. I think it's what John was talking about when he, when he wrote in 1 John 4. He said, you know, beloved, there's the song I'm gonna sing for you. Let us love one another. You know this song? For love is of God and every, No. One that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Oh my gosh, it's a classic. What's the key? The key is that God is in us and when God is in us, we by nature then love like him. What does that mean? Oh, that means love is not something internal to us. Love is something that God gives us. That's why it's an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. We can't love. God loved us first is why we even love. Oh my goodness, Paul was saying, you guys are a miracle. And Cornerstone, those of you that know Jesus, we are a miracle. Not because of us, but because God being in us and through us is his point. He was trying to tell the Thessalonians, that's who you are. 
So holy love that's to be brotherly, it's not natural, it's given to us. But here's the next crucial kind of facet of it. I think that Paul meant for this truth to be absolutely mind-bending. Now the question is, how did I get that from here? Well, if you can go with me again, just stick with me a little bit more. We're gonna look at just a little bit more Greek and kind of the grammar and the grammatical structure. But let me show you using kind of modern day texting, okay? Just go with me. Now if I received a text from you that said he was angry, Okay, pretty self-explanatory. I'd understand dude's upset. But what happens to a text when somebody does this? Whoa. Yo, Todd, he's livid, right? I mean, that's what it means. He's, a, he, he's not a happy camper. But what about this? Todd? The guy that I'm talking about is a rabid, raging lunatic kind of anger, and you need to get down here right now. In other words, there's ways that we craft and put sentences together so that we know beyond the words what the author is trying to say. Now, in verse 9, here's I'm going to connect the dot for you, is that you can't see it in the English, but he's going to use y'all three times in a way that most people don't see it. So I'm going to draw it out for that you can kind of see this in verse 9 with the word y'alls. Now watch this. He says, for y'all, y'all selves, y'all are God taught to love one another. Now you might be wondering, okay, again, Todd, thanks for a Greek lesson. I'm so glad your, your, your seminary education is finally paying off, but who cares? Well, this y'all used three times meant this is really, really important. In Greek, when they would use a word over and over and over again, what it was intended to say is this is very, very, very important. What he's saying here is they might have felt run down, they might have felt depressed, they might have felt beat down, they might have felt like they were failing, but they, he was saying, you, y'all, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. You've demonstrated, he said, by how you have loved other people, including loving brothers and sisters in Christ that were outside of you. He wanted them to get this fact. And there's a reason that I'm beating this dead horse over and over again. Paul wanted them to know it's in you. It's not external to you. That song, looking for love in all the wrong place. I'm singing to you nonstop today. We're going to have a best of hits that are going to come out after this message. That song is stupid. We're looking for love in all the wrong places because it's not found in us or out of us. It is only found in the God of the universe. And Paul says, because the spirit of God is in you, you have this kind of love. What that means is that it's a character of brotherly love. It's given to us by God, but the third thing is it's possessed by every person in Christ. If you are in Jesus, you are able to love to this extent. If you're not in Christ, let me just be honest with you right now. You can't love like this. 
This love is foreign to us. It's something that comes into us, that transforms us, that allows us to love. This is why King Jesus came. He came to broken people. He came demonstrating what love was to look like. He died in an act of love, rescuing us from this sinful world that we live in, and then implanted his Holy Spirit in us so that we might now be as God intended to be able to love people like he's called us to. And Paul says, this is a y'all endeavor. This is who y'all are, even if you don't feel like it. And just to make sure it's solidified in our minds, and I swear this is the last little Greek geek out moment that I'm gonna take with you. He's gonna add one more thing in verse nine. He says, for you yourselves, and here's the word, have been taught by God to love one another. The word have been is so important. That translation works, but if you have the Nep Bible, it actually doesn't say have been, it says you are. In fact, he uses this word that's a word of identity. This is who you are. You are a God-taught one. You are the very one that is a new creation in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17. You are by nature now made absolutely different, and you have the capacity to love a spouse that is unlovable. You have the capacity to love a parent that's a pain in the neck. You have the capacity to love children that aren't always the most lovable people on the face of this planet. You have the capacity to love bosses and employees. You have the capacity to love leaders even when they don't do what you want them to. You have the capacity to love your trash man when he forgets to take your trash this last Monday, which we did when one of my containers, and I was really frustrated. <laughs> As holy people, we love. That's who we are. We are by nature now lovers, <laughs> not fighters, I guess because of the work of God that's been done in us. And Paul intends in these two verses, verse and a half, just to keep beating that horse over and over again until this group of people understands how key this really is. And what's so cool about that, because it's who we are, that means every single one of us are in process. Every single one of us are learning to love. That word actually that's used by we are God taught, meaning that we don't get it all at first, which means God must teach us over and over and over again. And so if you're an unbeliever watching this particular church, just understand that we are not perfect. We are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but we are learning. Paul wanted them to get that. It's also a process. And I say all these things when it's talking about this holy family love because in 1 Thessalonians 3.12, he says that's how it's increasing in you. It's supposed to increase. It's supposed to, that word literally means to keep growing and growing and growing to the point when you hit this word abound, now it's supposed to abound. It's supposed to overflow into the world in which we live in. He says, you as the church, you stoke that brotherly love for one another. You embrace the identity of who you are. You dive into that process. Y'all become the y'all that y'all was intended to be. You become that and embrace that, and love begins to grow, and soon it begins, he says now, to spill out, abound in love, and not just to one another, but look at that word there, for who? All. All. 
That means it's for your neighbor. But I think one of the things that we forget, it's also for our enemy. We as the church are designed like King Jesus was, like like God's people have always been, to love even our enemy at great cost. In fact, the distinction between Christianity and every other faith out there is the belief that God has set us apart to create lovers that not only love those that are like them and not only love those that agree with them, but even love those who disagree with them or are even their enemies. Paul says, this is who you are. And Cornerstone, this is who we are. Let me say it again. This is who we are as set apart people. We're not perfect, but we're designed to have a holy family love. That's why we're doing membership. That's why we're making such a big deal about discipleship is our whole heart is that we would embrace this identity of what it means to be a church. And I know some of you can probably point out lots of gaps and flaws in who we are, and I'd probably even agree with you we're not doing this perfectly, but that's the trajectory that God calls us to be on, and so that's the trajectory that we intend to go, which is why I'm even wanting to teach First Thessalonians. I want our world to look at us and say, that's a family. Now, what do we mean then it's supposed to spill over? Well, in 1 Thessalonians 4.10, let me, let me kind of now turn the corner here. He's gonna move from who they are now to what it now looks like. He's, he's gonna say, but we urge you. Here's that word again. I'm exhorting you now, brothers and sisters. I want you to do this. And he's gonna say this word more and more. He's connecting off this idea of a bound. I want it now to grow in you and ignite in you. I want when all of you to gather together, whether it's in a large context like this room, whether you get together inside of communities, whether you get together one-on-one, I want you to provoke, the writer of Hebrews says in 1025, I want you to provoke love for one another. I don't want you to stop until you provoke that love. I want you to stir it again so that it now spills over so that, again, it lands on the for all. We need to get this out into our communities. This family love wasn't just for the love between each other so that we can kind of somehow say that, okay, good, we've done a good job, we, we love each other. It's meant to fuel and to ignite and to be an incubator of love so that when we land out into the world that we live in, we authentically now love one another. We love our neighbors and we love even our enemies. However, the natural question is, okay, that sounds great and whatnot, but Fine, how do we do this more and more statement? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because the answer is in verse 11. What he's gonna do is, is he's gonna start to give these two statements connected to a verb. So to do something is what he's gonna do. Look at the first one in verse 11, what he has there. Paul urged them now to do this more and more. I want you to aspire to live quietly. I want you to bring that holy family love together in such a way that you aspire to live quietly. 
Aspire has this term that you sometimes think about when I look at it. It's just brazen and bold and then live quietly seems like meek and mild. How does a group of people live bold and meek at the same time, Paul? Well, I keep getting myself in trouble if we're not saying what I think it isn't saying. And so I'm going to say exactly what I think it isn't saying before I tell you what it is saying. Let me start by telling you that what Paul is saying here, what he's telling the church is that we as Christians, he's not saying we should avoid conflict. That is not what he's saying. I think there's no doubt about it that when you choose to live and speak the gospel into relationships that God has given around us, we will by nature create conflict because when we bring the good news of Jesus into relationships, it by nature comes in conflict with fallen people who are in need of the gospel, but their rebellion is called into question, and so it just creates conflict. If you think you can live a Christian life without conflict, you are lying to yourself. In fact, I think the entire Gospels, all the book of Acts, and every letter that Paul, James, Peter, John, all of them wrote, there's this constant rhythm that there will be conflict. Everywhere the church was, and every time they lived and proclaimed the Gospel, conflict just happened. It can't be avoided. However... He was saying is that we must not purposely create conflict. In fact, we should seek to, and if we are possible, alleviate conflict. Now, here's why I think he's saying it. Because I don't want to hinder the gospel. I want people to see the gospel. And if all they see is a bunch of angry people shaking their fist into the air, they're going to begin to think that the Christian world is a bunch of revolutionaries. We are not revolutionaries. We're the opposite of revolutionaries. Instead, who we are as God's people is we are people now that come in to relate to the world the goodness of who King Jesus is. We don't purposely start fights we don't purposely seek to come into an environment and to cause conflict for no reason. Instead, as representatives of God, we come in with a gospel that's already gonna cause conflict, but we make sure that no other conflicts around it get in the way so that they can hear and see the message of King Jesus. In fact, I think over the last two and a half, three years as we've walked through things, I have, I've watched others. I think we just fought dumb fights and we missed the fact that our job was not to fight fights. Our job was to proclaim the greatness of King Jesus. I think you see this like in Acts 17. You see this model where it says in there, when, when they could not find them, that's Paul and Titus, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city authorities in, in Thessalonica shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let him go. Now, no doubt, when you look down in this text, you look at there, they were preaching another king, King Jesus. The good news was definitely unsettling to those who heard it. However, they weren't like other revolutionaries that just kind of spring up over, all over Rome thinking somehow, if I just cause a lot of problems, that's the way that I'll do it to advance my cause. Instead, at great cost to guys like Jason and great cause to other wealthy people within this particular city, they went in and they calmed the situation. Why? 
They didn't calm it because they were afraid. They didn't calm it because somehow they thought that's that's the easier way to go. They calmed it because they didn't want people to think they were revolutionaries. They wanted to see them as representatives, ones who were calling out to the world to the greatness of Jesus. Now listen to me. Christians will topple kings. We will topple kingdoms, but not through human means of power. Not through human means of force. The way that we topple kings and kingdoms is through transformed lives. We go out proclaiming our message and governments and all governments, including ours, are part of the old world order than this system that's passing away. So we go out and we call out to people with a message. And in hearing that message then, people literally are disrupted. But when they embrace it, now all of a sudden they become the people that God intends them to be. You don't try to change via top down. Christ changed from bottom up. He didn't come as a great king. He came as a servant. The church now wasn't this great conquering power that went throughout Rome. But in less than 300 years, they had ravaged and took over in many ways the Roman Empire, not by force and by power, but with a message of a king. We're different. Don't buy into the lie that we need to get into power cahoots with other groups and other systems and other, other political parties. We are highly political, but our king is King Jesus, and he currently reigns and rules over all things. And there is coming a day when our great king will manifest himself, and the whole world will finally realize the greatest form of government is a monarchy in King Jesus. Paul is saying, if you want people to see the king, which is the most loving thing you can do, don't just cause problems to cause problems. Live at peace as much with all, with all men as much as you're able to. But get out of the way so that people can see our great king, King Jesus. I think that's what he's saying here. That's how we're connected to holy love. That's the first one. Now, the second one that he's gonna bring out there is also found in verse 11. When you look down there, he's gonna have another two statement. He says, to mind your own affairs. Put another way, and if your mom ever said this, y'all need to mind your own business, you kind of in one way might think what she's talking about. I remember one time I came into my mom and dad having a discussion, and I said, hey, what are you talking about? She said, mind your own business. And then I saw my dad look at me and I walked backwards away. (laughs) But what did he mean by this? Well, his last time, let me explain to you what I don't think Paul was saying. I don't think he was saying that Christians are supposed to stay out of each other's business. In fact, I read the Gospels and Acts in the New Testament, and I would say this in humility and gentleness, not arrogantly or judgmentally. I think Christians are supposed to be in each other's business. I think we are supposed to help one another because to settle for anything less than people walking passionately with King Jesus is to settle and allow them to be something that God never intended them to be. It is to be done with humility and gentleness, but we've got to be in each other's lives. That's not what he is saying here. He's also not saying that God's church is not supposed to speak out boldly into the evil that we see in our world. 
We are to speak out boldly against things like abortion. We are to speak out boldly against anything that sets itself against who God is. We are to be prophets in this world, declaring when something is evil and not evil, but be careful because we tend to say, based upon our group of people, not upon scripture, what we think is evil and not evil. We are only to proclaim what God says to be evil in those moments. We have to speak out. So what is Paul talking about if it's not that? Well, I think what he's talking about here connects well with the verse before, or the the two statement before, when he's talking about this idea of power structures in our world. We're not supposed to get caught up in the power structures. You see, kind of within the culture of this time, and now we're gonna look at history, once it was Greek, now we're gonna look at history, was that there was this relationship that people would have between patrons and clients. In order for a client, that would be a lesser class person, somebody without power, in order for them to get safety or comfort or security or in some way to feel like they weren't falling through the cracks, they would go make a relationship with a patron as a means of being able to have power, of a means of being able to live kind of normally within the world. In other words, that became the normal channels of power that we go through. This one guy, kind of an expert on this particular time in which this was written, a guy named Matthias Gelser, he said, these relationships determine the distribution of political power. To maintain their rights, citizens and subjects alike were constrained to seek the protection of powerful men. I think what Paul is saying in this context is don't, don't. Don't try to get in behind these powerful men as if they're going to save you. I mean, the whole Old Testament is a story of the Israelites wrongly going down a path because they thought, oh, I will go get into cahoots with the Egyptians, or I will go get into cahoots with the Assyrians, or I will go get into cahoots with the Babylonians. I've never said cahoots that many times. Or I will go get into cahoots with some other group of people as the means of now being able to have safety and comfort and security and being able to have strength in this world. And God would send prophets to them and say, how dare you do that? Your power and comfort and strength don't come from other political parties or armies or kingdoms. It comes from me. I think what he's saying here when we say mind your own affairs is we have to be careful who we create alliances with. I think every political season we're reminded, and again, each of us in different ways and different forms, we are not Democrat or Republican first. We are not even Americans first. If you're a follower of Jesus, we are Christians first. We are Christ ones. And I do not have to rely upon any power system or structure. I don't have to rely upon powerful people. I don't have to rely upon bombastic, arrogant people or well-communicated people or any of those things. Why? Because my God reigns and rules over the entire universe, and we have got to embrace that. He is king. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, so therefore, we don't have to do that. We don't have to scream and yell at the world. We don't have to put you know, different things around saying, this is who we are. Who we are is we are followers of King Jesus. Now here's the last one. Not only now are we to be this group of people that uniquely now on one end of it aspire to live quietly, mind our own affairs, but now he says in there, I want you also to work with your own 
Now, what does that mean? Well, on one level, let me tell you what it's not saying. It's not saying if you're like me and you have typing fingers, calluses, that you are a deficient person if you don't have a shovel in your hand because I put a shovel in my hand and I got the mark of stigmata a few weeks ago. He's not saying you're more of a follower of Jesus if you do manual labor versus whatever kind of labor. That's not what he's saying. At this particular time, man, Paul, as a rabbi, would have known outside of the study of the law, one of the most crucial things that he did was be a man that works. We work. The Greeks at that time had an attitude that was different. If you somehow did manual labor or you mean in some way did a labor that was differently than what they did, you were considered kind of an outcast. You didn't belong. You weren't in the loftier culture. Paul's speaking to a group of Greek people telling them, look, no, when God created you, he created you to work. If you are able, we work. The way that we love our world, he's gonna say, is one, by being this group of people that model for them who our king is, that live it out in such a way that we show the greatness of King Jesus, but then he adds in this other one, based upon all these things, I want you to work with your hands for people to see what it means to be created by God. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians, he's gonna say, if you don't work, you don't eat. We work. We work because we were designed to work. It's who God created us to be, but why? Well, in Proverbs, it talks about this idea of an ant. We are to be working like an ant. We're not to be idle like other things. We're to be an ant. But have you ever noticed also, though, an ant doesn't collect for itself. It collects for the what? Whole colony. So when he's saying there, I want you to work, I want you to make sure, he says, that your church is such a church that you all, if you are able to work, so that you can make sure that those aren't able to work are provided for. But now if we're talking about spillover, so that you can, like James 1, care for the widow and care for the orphan in your community, to care for those that are uh, somehow marginalized within your community. I want you to work. Why? Because that's how I want you to love people. Paul says, look, fuel that love for one another as the means of making sure that our world sees what humanity is intended to be. I think that's why he says, I don't want you to be dependent upon anyone. But I think there's this other side of it, and this is where it all lands. It's because I want you to walk properly before outsiders. Now, I say all that, and we get to this point. Let me just kind of talk as a shepherd as we finish up. So often people create all kinds of evangelistic things. We're gonna you know, grab the four spiritual law, the Romans road. We're gonna grab the master plan of evangelism. We're gonna grab all these different things and we're gonna go get our world. The greatest form of evangelism that is around within the church, according to this text, according to even, I would say this, John 13, 35, is that the way people will know that we're disciples of Jesus by how we love each other. This is what I mean by take your, put your mask on first before you put your mask on the world. 
that what my heart is, is for all of you in here, if you're not involved in a community of any kind, you need to be in a community because we need to be in positions where we are loved and we learn to love. We need to be together. We need to fuel that fire. If you're not a member, just so you understand this, I'm not trying to get everybody to be a member because I think like somehow getting everybody in our roles is the thing that we're supposed to do. It is that I need to know who it is that I'm looking at and saying, are you, are you with me? Are we together on this? Are we family? That's what I'm asking when we talk about membership. I know some of you said, oh, you know, I've signed up twice before. This is just all stupid and it's dumb. And you can think that. And we've got plenty of time to be able to figure this out. But every facet of discipleship and membership is just simply a clarification. Who's part of this local spiritual family? Who am I responsible for? As a shepherd, who is it that I will stand before God and give an answer to? By how I came into your life and loved you, hopefully in such a way that you loved others. It's why we're engaging in discipleship. Because I want our community to know that we are Christians, to know that we're disciples of Jesus. I just want to see this passionate love in here. Not a pretend love. Not a love like that used to be at my grandparents' church. I remember this. My grandma and I were walking along, and this guy came up to me and he goes, Oh, sister, 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 I love you, sister, sister. And we walked away, and my grandma said a cuss word. She said, Baloney, right? In church. I don't want that. I want the real thing, don't you? I mean, don't you want that real thing? Not that play thing like we talk about it. And I think that's why Paul had to tell him, this is who you are. Now, go live like it. Now, here's what I want everybody to do. I'm just gonna commission you as we stand up. Everybody stand up. The band is gonna play us out today. You can, you can come on out. They'll play us out today, but you can leave after I pray for everybody if you want to. If you want, you can also stick around and sing. Last week, we talked about holiness, specifically in and around like sexual brokenness. We're doing a podcast in which we're talking now through that particular issue because like I said, I think it's a crucial issue. But my heart in us becoming holy is not just holy for holiness sake. My heart is in us becoming holy. We might love like God has designed us to love. A powerful love, a bold love. A love that even if it costs us, we don't care because we will model King Jesus by modeling people even to death if we need to. Modeling love for people even if it costs us our lives. And so in the name of the Father, who it talks about in 1 John 4, God is love. And God has now indwelt our hearts because of the work of King Jesus who came. And oh my goodness, what greater love is this than a man lays down his life for his brother. And our King came and he laid down his life so that all of us who are followers of Jesus might be a part of God's family. We can now call the Father who is love our Father. And now through the inbreaking of the Holy Spirit, the chief characteristic of those people now that have the fruit of the Spirit is that we now can love. 
And so in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, may Cornerstone embrace this type of holy family love and may it spill out into our community in such a way that we see people now embrace the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords because they know we're disciples by our love. And all God's people said,